The Partially Examined Life relies on your support. To find out how to help in ways that are cheap or even free for you, please visit partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. You're listening to The Partially Examined Life, a podcast by some guys who at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 188 is something like, what's the relation between the erotic and the political? We read Jeffrey Henderson's 1988 translation of the play Lysistrata, first performed in 411 BC. For more information, please check out partiallyexaminedlife.com. This is Mark Linton-Meyer broadcasting to the polis from my oikos in Madison, Wisconsin. Oh God, I was going to say something just like that. (laughs) (laughs) This is Wes Alwyn in Cambridge, Massachusetts. This is Dylan Casey in Madison, Wisconsin. This is Lucy Lawless, always withholding sex, but never on TV, <laughs> in New Zealand. And this is Emily Perkins, and I was going to say, superimposing the oikos on the polis in uh, Very good. That's good. That's different. As we've seen, well, so yeah, we read the play. That's all we had to read. We did pick two articles, reviewed several, and discarded most of them as being too obscure but we'll put up links to J.M. Semmel's Sexual Humor and Harmony in Lysistrata from 1981 and Helene P. Foley's The Female Intruder Reconsidered, Women in Aristophanes' Lysistrata and another thing from 1982. And also, Jeffrey Henderson's introduction was very helpful that we even referred to a little bit before we started last time giving some of the background. Maybe we should just kind of go around and we had a little discussion beforehand and after doing the play itself, what is still on your mind? What are the philosophical issues or any kind of issues that are nagging you? Lucy, do you want to start us? One of the papers that you kindly sent through regarding translations, I found it could have been just that particular version, a little daft, did seem like somebody had hijacked Dr. Seuss, and I felt it lacked the weight of other, of when I've seen it on the stage. It could have been the rather jocular read, maybe it's all in the read. Are you talking about the translation itself that we read? Yes, I suppose I am. Is that a bad thing? No, it's not, because there are other translations that we came across. I won't say we considered. Like, for instance, one of them that Mark found had all the Spartans speaking in a very thick Appalachian accent. I didn't think it worked very well. (laughs) Someone said shuckins, I believe. That's a device, whereas language, I suppose when it rhymes, when it has that childlike rhyming, it lacks gravitas, whereas I like this low translation a lot because it seems a little bit old-fashioned-y. And what I love about listening to plays from that time, depending on the translation, I guess, is understanding that people 2,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, we haven't changed at all. Not a bit. It's so modern, this idea, isn't it? One of the reasons why Henderson rhymed the choruses is because they rhyme in Greek. And he did what's common in English translations is to put it in iambic pentameter, which is not what the Greek was in. Greek was in, what is it, daxilic hexameter? Is that right, Wes? No, that would be the lyric poetry. This is different. It's different, but it'll be metered. I just don't know what the meter was. One, two, one, two, one, two, three. So it's iambic trimeter. Yep. Is that what you're doing, Lucy? I'm just counting up what looks like might be the par- the syllables in the original Greek text. The two, the two, nikodik, not that I know, bugger all about anything, but 
That's what it looks like. Well, yeah, let's get a flavor of that. We'll send this link around to folks too. It's just something I found on the web right before we were going to record tonight. Lost in Translation, Interpreting the Lysistrata by Lara Wiebgen. There's one speech they show in Greek, and then they show four different translations of it. The Henderson is, faster, faster, we've got to fly, or else our friends will surely die. Some nasty elders have got a view to hold a female barbecue. We started early but might be late. We had to fill our pitchers. The well was jammed. We got delayed by slaves and pushy bitches. Shouting, shoving, smashing pots, banging heads and raising knots. Now we're here with pitchers filled to keep our friends from being grilled. So Lucy, do you want to leave? Star bellies. <laughs> yeah, Lucy, do you want to read yeah. the lobe that you thought was better? Okay. Fly, Nicodike, fly. Else will Calice burn. Else Cretilia will die. Slain by the law so stern. Slain by the old men's hate. Ah, but I fear, I fear. Can it chance that I come too late? Trouble it was, forsooth. Before my jug I could fill all in the dusk of the morn at the spring by the side of the hill. What with the clatter of pitches, the noise impressed the throng, jostling with knaves and slaves till at last I snatched it along. Abundance of water supplying to friends who are burning and dying. I mean, it's not exactly T.S. Eliot's. It's pretty good. It's not comedy, though. I love the late Henderson translation. It's so full of mischief. And I think it speaks to the point of the play, partly, is that the women are getting the men to not take themselves so seriously. They're not slaughtering an animal when they make their oath. They're drinking wine. They're kind of having a party. It's meant to be light. But is it light all the way through is the only problem. There's no relief in the bam bam ching, stick a fork in it. Right. I guess that's what it was. There wasn't a dynamic. (laughs) And of course, it was just us reading it cold. So it's a poor way to judge, I guess. I think when I was just reading the songs at the end, that those are supposed to be more traditionally pompous and stop and sing the Star Spangled Banner, basically. It's praising the gods. And so there's not a lot of puns with shit in them or something. I got that sense too. There's definitely places in the chorus where it does have that gravitas, where it could have. Like Lucy said, when you're doing a cold read, it's just so hard to explore the possibilities of the dynamics. Anyway, but that's not the philosophical issues, is it? What did people think about men using women? I was really, really thrown by the fact, uh, was it Dylan, you said that women were not even allowed to go to the theater. That's what I understood from the Henderson. This kind of thing is pointed out in both the articles we read that women had a role in public life, but it was concentrated in religion and in ritual and not in explicit political life that the men talked about. When you talked about having the debates in the democracy, there wasn't a woman in the house when Socrates got sentenced to death. All right. So I did a quick search on this. (laughs) Oh, good. So this has like long apparently been a controversy among classicists, whether women could attend those performances. And apparently it's inconclusive and it's debated still. So I thought one of the innovations of this play over a lot of the other ones was having the female chorus versus the male chorus. And the chorus members were not actually part of the regular cast from Henderson's introduction. I thought that they were sort of like jury members, that they were drafted from the general populace, just like you'd have to, in the Athenian democracy, participate in legislative things. This is one of the things you could do, is be in the chorus of a play. The main parts were all professional actors and the choruses were amateurs. And weren't they somehow like the people who spent the money to put on the plays in the festival? It was one of those things that you did as a wealthy person in the community is support these festivals with money. It reminds me of Mardi Gras because I was in New Orleans recently for that where I was trying to imagine what it would be like to be at the festival of Dionysius and... That seems like the closest thing I can imagine to it today. I don't know if you guys have ever been to Carnival or Mardi Gras, but 
the same sort of thing happens. So there are floats, and there are you have to become part of essentially one of these committees. And I think it's like people who are well established within the community in New Orleans and or have money, and they get to be on the floats, and they get to help fund it and do all that stuff. So was the female chorus women? Is my question. If women were not potentially allowed to even be there, then how could they indicate? If they're amateurs in the chorus, okay, you amateurs over here, you're the female chorus. When you sing the female lines, do them in a high silly voice or something like that's really, they didn't even use women for the female chorus. No, not based on what we read. Definitively no women on stage. What was the role of women in society? If you weren't a Sybil or a nun or whatever, a best or virgin, what? Because women have always been powerful behind the scenes. Even Saddam Hussein's wife was like crazy powerful in her own way. So were they really unto mention? What's the What I know about is what was in the two articles that we read, which Lisa Strada, her her name refers to a woman who was in, in society in, in Greece at the time. And the Oracle of Delphi was a woman and various rituals they involved women who ran the whole show. And you know, the patron goddess of the city is Athena. So the women definitely, they were a part of public life to the extent that they could be part of religious rituals. And Lysistrata, like as Dylan, you just pointed out, is based on Lysimica. The name has the same meaning, which is disbander of armies, actually. And Lysimica was a real priestess at that time in the society. So just to get to that question, you know, one of our articles was about the contrast between oikos, the household, and then polis, the public political life. And this idea that there's this ancient Greek comedy and drama, there's a lot of this idea of the female intruder, someone who moves out of the sphere of the household and into the public political realm. And then the question is just what does that mean exactly? Sounds sort of intrinsically threatening, though. An intruder is somebody who's not really welcome, you know, hasn't forced their way in somehow. There wouldn't be many of them. So I was just doing a lot of poking around for background history, trying to remind myself, even just looking at the Peloponnesian War and other stuff. But what I came across is this is another thing that's a big subject of debate. Like, how much power did ancient Greek women really have? Some historians, they kind of suggest that women actually did have an indirect role in politics through their husbands, basically. It's not as simple as them being completely excluded, although, of course, they couldn't be politicians and, and all that stuff played a role like that once and when you're um you get a lot of time to think about yourself in that context and certainly all the terrible things that this character that people would say oh what's it like to play a villain never saw her like a villain because if you were not attached to male with status you were nowhere you were dead and to help raise him up was the only way of raising yourself up it was absolutely a matter of life and death. There was no support mechanisms in those days. So for a girl to make, even in the Edwardian times, for a girl to make a good marriage was the only game in town unless you were prepared to be a vestal virgin for the rest of your life. Foley, in her article, she talks about how Lysistrata never really leaves the oiko. She brings it along with her and she superimposes it on the space of the polis. And she has that whole speech where she says government should be more like washing the wool. And she uses the domestic metaphor of weaving to talk about the government of Athens and makes the Acropolis into a domestic space. So she isn't really an intruder in that sense. She hasn't really left her proper place. The power that she takes is as a woman. She's not transgressing any sort of gender boundaries. 
in that way, it makes the play less about the gender roles themselves and more about what the proper seat of public life. It's almost like a political philosophy question. Where should the seat of the rules of the community come from? Should they come from the home or should they come from something outside the home? This is a theme that's throughout Greek plays. It's related to the theme in the Oresteia about what kind of justice you should have, whether you should have an eye for an eye kind of justice of I was wrong, so I will take my vengeance versus the justice that's broader in the city. And in that play, Athena comes down and stops the tit for tat that's going on. Following Foley's argument, you could make Aristophanes being a partisan of a more home-centric life of the city. So I liked in the Foley article, there's this basically compare and contrast between tragedy in general and then two Aristophanes plays, Lysistrata and then Assembly Women. And in Assembly Women, the women really do intrude and impose their values on the polis as a whole in the sense that they turn society into a social and sexual and economic communist society. And so Foley argues that's really where the pejorative comic stereotypes of ancient Greece regarding women, their deceptiveness and their sexual unfaithfulness or tendency to promiscuity, things like that, which were kind of staples of the way women were represented comically, those are the things that actually get imposed. And in Lysistrata, it's not so much that the oikos is imposed on the polis. It's that Lysistrata, in a sense, herself represents both oikos and polis and is trying to harmonize the two. As Emily mentioned with the woolmaking, wants to sort of bring the values of the oikos into the polis to repair something that's been broken. It's not an attempt to replace the existing order, but to return it to the status quo. So there's nothing about the status quo's question in terms of what women's roles are, what men's roles are. It's just a matter of using the tools of the oikos, the private household sphere, to repair the relation between the political and the private realms. I would think the modern analog of that would be the talk of like bread and butter issues that most people, they don't care about the machinations of power at the high levels. They don't want to hear about large scale environmental issues. They don't want to hear about overseas. So there's this huge part of American politics and probably any world politics that's sort of folk based that is alleging that government has gotten improperly detached from the stuff that everyday people care about. We'll say more about that. It seems so much simpler in the society pictured here because either it's men running off and fighting battles that are obviously just stupid. The way that it's described in the articles and the way that it's depicted in the play is there's no real rationale. It is Greeks fighting Greeks. It's not them fundamentally defending their homeland against Persian invaders or something. That might be a just war. That might be something they'd be in favor of. But the kind of thing that they're involved in now is purely a distraction from what truly matters in human life. And whether other things that are in the realm of men that the men go and debate in their equivalent of parliament at the time, whether those are also devoid from the oikos, in other words, whether the polis and the oikos, just because the polis is a mechanism and it's a different population that's sort of worried about manly things or something, whether there's always a division there or whether, as it's pictured here, that it's just their historical circumstances can cause a break and you would need something like this to pull it back together. I think once we get into a larger world where caring about what happens on the other side of the ocean at all, caring that some government is oppressing their people, caring that the ice caps are being melted, et cetera, et cetera, it makes it much more complicated. It's not necessarily that the polis is being foolish when it detaches itself. And in fact, where the warmongers here 
are depicted as the conservative ones, as the ones who are stuck in this wretched pattern, whereas now we feel like being worldly, you should actually be aware of what's going on the other side of the world. You should detach yourself from bread and butter issues that the purely Oikos-based politics is, in fact, narrow-minded and provincial. Who's saying that it's narrow-minded and provincial? You are, or? I'm saying that. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, I mean, how did you other folks think about the relation between this and the present? We just saw it all happen, didn't we? Where, you know, maybe the Democrats, somebody coming from a country who has labor and national, you know, and labor is very concertedly about working class, unions, all that stuff, still connected to the unions. The Democrats never seemed like that to me. And I just thought, oh, well, it's different here. But I think what you saw with Trump's election was all those, the oil-class people, the bread and butter issues people, felt very cut off from the, they were hating all that Al Gore smart guy stuff and who does bitch Hillary Clinton think she is? She thinks she's so damn smart. You know, that hatred of intellectualism. And they stayed away. They didn't feel that they spoke for them or cared about them and they stayed away. But equally hating the warmongering Dick Cheney part of the Republic, you know, the neocons as well, that that's also stripped from the Oikos. This Oikos polis thing kind of cuts across our partisan divide. Well, let's say what Oikos values are exactly. Yeah. And polos values. When you get angry Oikos, or they're going for the crazy intruder who's going to get the biggest finger at the others, the biggest finger possible. And that's what you've got with Trump. He's a big finger. One finger way up. Yeah. I'm thinking of Oikos as domestic values or values of the domestic spheres, the preservation of one's family and one's property and the things associated with women in ancient Greek society, taking care of children and managing household finances, home economics, probably telling the slaves what to do and managing that. All of that private sphere stuff, as opposed to being focused on, well, what should we do as a state as far as the policy is concerned? What's the good of the state? What do we do diplomatically with other nations? How do we conduct our foreign policy? How do we spend our money? Do we spend it on war? And that's the basic division, but we could probably expand on that a little more. And this is famous as a war between the sexes sort of drama, and it reminds me of the claim that's often made that if women ran things and we wouldn't have all these damn wars, we're kind of seeing maybe the birth of that meme with this play. I'm not really sure, but we saw that we did a feminism episode a long time ago where we read this book, Herland, that depicted a society of all women, Then it was very communist and it was very peaceful and it completely different dynamics. Now we're getting to the point where within our lifetime... <laughs> This might actually happen in terms of at least there being more parity among the ruling classes. Hopefully, I was just reading an article, the number of women running for office this year is like astronomically higher than it's ever been before. And maybe in a few generations, we could actually get there. Do you feel like there's any evidence that it actually would be any different? (laughs) And if you do, like, what does that actually say about nature versus nurture and the sex differences or whatever? That's at least a question that I was coming into this with. I don't have a ready answer. Would it be better if women ran things? (laughs) I think it will be better when I've just been to Norway and I was struck at the airport by how many men were alone with small children. One, two, three Mm -hmm. small children. And it struck me because you never see that in other places. So many men alone with children. It's because they have this job sharing thing that the man or the woman can take time off, but somebody has to take paid leave to look after the children. It's all normalized. I just thought there was so much more equality 
I really see that as a pre-Simone de Beauvoir kind of question. Like we don't really think of women as having an essential nature anymore. We don't associate particular gendered body with particular traits, like whether they're masculine or feminine. Explain more about that because that's so obvious to you all because you think about that all the time, but that's a really fascinating thing you just said. For me as a feminist, it's hard to think about a time when people believed that there were female essences and male essences that were attached to the female or the male body. So that if you were born a woman with a female body, then you would be feminine. You would just naturally be feminine and vice versa for men. So like de Beauvoir questioned that. I mean, I'm sure it's been questioned many times throughout history and the Greeks to have lots of like gender bending kind of stories. For me, the Oikos Polis thing, I think really seeing them as mutually defining as the contradictory unity that Foley's talking about in an article. I think the reason why it failed, it doesn't have any revolutionary potential is because it doesn't understand those two things as enough of a unity as like perpetuating that cycle of violence. I mentioned the other night, like I think at the end of the play, the women just go home and produce the next generation of soldiers. And it's really these cycles of war and peace and like this fluctuation back and forth between like having the peaceful time and the war time. Like that's necessary for perpetuating war. Like you can't have constant war. You have to go back and forth. So I think in seeing those male and female values as an opposition versus a unity that prevents us from actually achieving any real kind of peace. Like the peace here is dependent on like domestic violence, essentially, or the subjugation of the female body within the domestic sphere, right? So yeah, I think if we see them as sort of co-extensions versus separate entities, then there's more potential for something different to arise. Do you think that Aristophanes is pointing towards that with a kind of the way West put it was that the polis had overextended and that the Lysistrata was leading a retaming of it. That, as you point out and Foley points out, it doesn't end in there being any difference in roles. It's not as if there's a change in what the polis does and what the oikos is and, and what those roles are, but maybe a rebalancing of them. That would make what you're saying exactly right, that we don't expect there never to be a war in the end, but that there was something about the state of things at this point that revealed that the things were out of balance. And so it was really, you know, Lysistrata's action is really a rebalancing action. Through the but I think that's their- the mistake. Like, that's what okay. I'm trying to say is that that okay. is a mistake because you're still seeing them as these polarities. And what we really mm-hmm. should do is see them as the same thing they're mutually sustaining. And as long as you don't recognize like the inherent violence of the domestic space, you're not going to be able to prevent the violence in the polis. Like they're the same thing. In a way, the problem is seeing these things as needing to rebalance. That's what allows this machine to function. Oh, Emily, you give me so much hope. I must say. So I turn 50 next week and I have to tell you, I remember in my lifetime, the idea that Females and males are inherently and almost inalterably different, mm-hmm. essentially different. Yep. As somebody who grew up in the 70s, you, same with you, Dylan? I turned 50 in June. Yeah, so the fa- how old are you, Emily, may I ask? I'm 40. <laughs> the younger generation. 
It's not a different okay. generation. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, it, uh, well, you know what? It's hugely different. But I see in the way that you're educated and the way you think, I see this very much alive in my own children who are now 15 and 18. What seemed like such a problem to us, such an obstacle, it's been obliterated in their minds and, and perception mm-hmm. is nine-tenths of reality. Yeah. And there's even this like new language to describe gender. Like we have cisgender that unifies male and females who conform to like the heteronormative expectation. And just, I think, unifying like male and female under that word cisgender has allowed an opposition, a new opposition to come in, which is gender non-conforming or gender non-binary. I go into classrooms and I see kids who I have no freaking clue whether they are boys or girls. So there's no way I'm going to be dividing the class into boys against girls playing a game against each other. Like, I can't do it. (laughs) So yeah, that's really cool. So I think in a way it has happened. And is it rude for us to appropriate that idea and go, I don't think I want to say that. You know, I'm male or female on that application either because it gives you permission to not narrowly define yourself. Mm -hmm. Totally. I think multiplicity is kind of where it's at now. So you can be different things on different days and people are okay with that. You know, you don't have to stick to one particular subjective. I said to my kid along those lines, I said to my kid, well, are you gay or are you straight? And I went, I don't know, do I have to choose? Well, that's the point. You don't choose. You either are or you aren't. So can you tell me, like, no, I don't know. No, I don't buy into those categories. Like, I don't buy into categories. What's the big deal? (laughs) I don't know. I just wanted to know. Putting aside this nature versus nurture thing, there's still a meme in the culture that if women were in charge, things would be more peaceful. Not necessarily because women are by nature more peaceful, but because of the culture of masculinity, right? You don't have women saying the kind of things in general that Trump says, you know, the predatory sort of obnoxious stuff. Obviously, he has spokespeople who are women who say some version of that. (laughs) So it's certainly not a hard and fast decision, but you know, there still seems to be something that resonates from all the way back in Greek times, whether it's, again, maybe not, it's only conventionally associated with womanhood, but Marie Le Pen is a pretty xenophobic anti-immigration. I mean, (laughs) I don't know if she's a sexual harasser the way that Donald Trump is. It's not better that women be in charge, but the world will be better if it's 50-50, right? It's the feminine principle that needs to be valued. 50% of the world's population doesn't think they're that good at mathematics. You're losing a lot of brain trust, right? So we need to, quality of education, well, God, I'm preaching to the choir here, but yeah, I love what you brought up, that with communion, you get something wonderful. Two halves don't make a whole. Communion makes something I think like not only the unity, but then continued bifurcation, continued difference. Like it's the unity is not for the sake of unity itself. It's for the sake of making space for more diverse understandings to arise. Well, Emily and Lucy, I thought your conversation was interesting in light of the fact of the way the authors of our secondary readings talk about Lysistrata herself who is not simply a representative of women in the play. So, for instance, here's the way Foley puts it about Lysistrata. Lysistrata becomes a public figure who transcends the follies of both sexes, each of which retains to the end its traditional comic vices and acts to reveal precisely those areas, specifically religious ones, in which there is ultimately no division between public and private interests, because women are allowed to act publicly in religious areas. Women in Lysistrata therefore represent both oikos and polis, 
and her quote-unquote intrusion into public life and the denouement of the play emphasize the common, not the exclusive, interests of the sexes. Every other woman in the play, right, behaves like an idiot, just like every man in the play behaves like an idiot. Lysistrata transcends all of them. Even though she's bringing the values of the oikos, let's say, to the polis, it's not simply that she represents one or the other or that she simply represents the masculine or the feminine. She's not a feminized man or a masculinized woman. Here's the way Semmel puts it. The only fully realized individual in the drama is Lysistrata. She is principled, knowledgeable, political. She is articulate and forceful enough to make the women restrain their passions, farsighted enough to realize that the men will not be able to restrain theirs. That she lacks the coarse lust of her colleagues is not a sign of sterility, but an indication of her self-control and self-contained confidence. So I thought that was very interesting. Your conversation, the light of the fact, you know, what is it that Lysistrata represents? I think at least these authors agree that it's not simply the average woman or something else like that. What do you guys think about that? Well, she's turning her community into an army on another sword, isn't it, to combat that hyper-masculinity that she's taking She's divine. The women in this play are very much representing female stereotypes. But the fact that through Lysistrata, they are able to wield those with intention reveals that they are not reducible to those stereotypes. And I think that's what the divine does. The divine reveals that there's, you know, this other level, the level of intentionality, the higher self that can direct the subject that's been constructed by the culture and, and all its flaws. Although she's also hot. <laughs> like that is made very clear that in fact she's at the, the end of the play. Where is that made clear? When the map comes out. Actually, this was an ambiguity. So in our translation, it doesn't have stage directions and doesn't announce that the map woman has come out. But it says page 59 is what I have marked on the PDF. The Athenian ambassador and the Spartan ambassador are there and she's starting to scold them both and try to make them make peace. And it doesn't seem like they're really listening to her. They're both so horny. And that they're just responding to her like, what a great ass she has. Like, it's working. They're coming in peace, but it didn't have the positive spin that some of the secondary readings we looked at seemed to give it. Like, it seemed to me, at least in Henderson's interpretation, again, this might be a matter of what translation you're reading and how they interpreted that. They're exhibiting their follies all the way toward the end. And she's giving us the spirit of Athena, who is not Aphrodite, but is still like strikingly beautiful, everybody fall down. That still ends up being a necessary part. It's not that she is a purely spiritual being or that she's 80 years old and she's just displaying the wisdom of the ages that everybody's bowing down to. It's that she's the sweet spot of <laughs> wise, but yet also, you know, appealing on every level. All the awesome people in Greece were beautiful, right? I mean, being beautiful and being awesome went hand in hand, right? <laughs> I was just thinking the same thing. Even little boys could be beautiful. Sorry, that's terrible. What did you just say? <laughs> I was reading a lot about pederasty in ancient Greece today. So. Yeah, it was girls too, right? I read that. I, I didn't realize I, before I thought it was just boys. but Oh, was it girls, girls as, well? as well? Yeah. I wonder, what did that do to their society? You know, They were very a... sex positive, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> but what does that do to young people? If they're groomed just right, do they grow up thinking everything's fine and carry on with, like, how do you have that as part of the fabric of society? There's also a power dynamic. There may have been some conceit that they were, the older people, the older men were educating these young men, or I doubt they were thinking of themselves as educating these very young women. It often just had a 
had a power dynamic to it. That they weren't going to become senators and stuff. I don't think. What you mean they were going to be a sex toy until they were a certain age, and then what? Would yeah, they I mean, get married? Yes. They? The girls, anyway, it was a way of like breaking them in the girls, and then they would go on to get married. That's what I thought when I read about it. Or uh, I don't know. Are you talking? Are they low socioeconomic status, or is this across? I just don't know those details. There are books we could read. Well, we did run into the, uh, some hints about that in our Homer episode that we just had. That it seemed like maybe chastity was not as expected of the lower classes as much as the upper class woman who was going to be matched up. That faithfulness was more important to expect of them than of any other ordinary woman. And not of men at all, is that correct? Not of husbands, they can... Yeah, the faithfulness involved not sexual fidelity, right? In the case of Odysseus, right, his faithfulness is his returning home. That didn't preclude his long relationship with Calypso and with make the long line of He was in the goddesses, you know? He was, yeah. Athena made him look awesome everywhere he went. So the Semo Mark right addresses that's sort of what his essay is about is the thing you mentioned where the trivial sexual stuff is being used to solve these big problems of state. And even though Lysistrata is herself this very formidable person, you know, good with language, a persuader, very the only reasonable person in the play, the thing that really brings everyone around is the sex part of it, you know, including the ridiculous negotiation over the map that coincides with a woman's body that Lysistrata sort of guides everyone through. But for Semmel, the larger point is that in the same way, you know, with these comedies at the festival, vulgarity could be used for the sake of social critique. Mm-hmm. In this case, desire and impulse and instinct, these sorts of things can be seen as serving the interests of the state. So Semmel has a great way of summing it up. Trivial human pleasures are better than bad politics and that good politics are founded on trivial human pleasure and that human pleasures are never really trivial. So this is sort of the parallel of bringing the Oikos values to the polis. Here you have the idea of bringing the uh, concept of pleasure and things that seem trivial and desire and instinct and all that stuff, how that might actually counterintuitively serve the polis as well. Yeah, I've just found a yeah, little thing here that joins together the roles of women and sex and invading the polis. Women played a prominent role in marriage, burial, and lament. And I bet there's a lot of that death in those days. Here the chorus of old women use these ritual powers to bury the offending magistrate and pour a nuptial bath on the old men to, quote-unquote, make them grow. The women take the Acropolis under a perfectly plausible pretext of sacrifice there. Historically, women frequently participated in ritual activities on the Acropolis and thus belong in this public space as much or even more than men. Yeah, Foley is trying to point out that they never really use illegitimate powers in the same way that in assembly women, the women sort of take over in this illegitimate way. And if you go back and read through the play, it's kind of uncanny how everything kind of hinges on some sort of religious ceremony. All the powers that they're executing in the play really are, they're sort of in a way, at least metaphorically, to perform them because they are a part of public religious life. But it also goes to the, the way in which the activity isn't revolutionary exactly. Except why are the men trying to smoke him out in that very vicious way? Before they even know what they're up to, what their grievances are, right? All that whole battle takes place before there's any conversation about what's up, what's wrong. So they just go straight to the fire. I guess before we get to the, the modern era, are there other things 
specifically from the play, weird things that happen in the plot or other themes that we haven't touched on yet that folks wanted to bring up? The whole wall section just lost me. Which is talking about, I guess it, Emily explained, it's, it's the activities of the home. So she's likening running a city to the carding wall or whatever the heck it is. But I didn't get the illusion at all. I didn't get the correlation between one and the other. And I've done it because my mother was a weaver. So I still don't get how it is like the polis. She was talking about weaving and wool and turning wool into yarn and weaving things and making the analogy of that with the polis as a way of talking about bringing women's, the oikos skills onto the polis. So it's page 32 of our version. First you wash the city as we wash the wool, cleaning out the bullshit. Then we pluck away the parasites, break up strands that clump together, forming special interest groups. Here's a bozo, squeeze his head off. Now you're set to card the wool. Use your basket for the carding, the basket of solidarity. There we put our migrant workers, foreign friends, minorities, immigrants and wage slaves, every person useful to the state. Don't forget our allies either, languishing like separate strands. Bring it all together now and make one giant ball of yarn. Now you're ready. Weave a brand new suit for all the citizens. So is that actually good advice or is this just glib? It's about bringing everybody into the process. I get it now. Okay. You start by cleaning the wool, getting rid of corruption, and then you're basically, I think, yeah, uniting not just people within the polis, but even this pan-Hellenic unity that should come out of the weaving. But you're also using the skills that are proper to women and oikos, right? So it's making a direct analogy. And in some ways, it's making a direct claim that the skills of running the city aren't any different than the skills of running a house. If you take the analogy as far as you might literally in what she's doing, she's saying, this is all the stuff that you would do to run the city. It's just like making a rug. See, to me, this just seems overly simple to the point of falsifying that really the liberal ideal now, and I don't mean liberal and Democrat, I mean liberal as in classical liberal, is that the state has to corral different separate interest groups. We can't actually clump everyone together. We have to acknowledge the separateness of these groups and sort of stand mediating between them and try to herd cats, so to speak. So if you say the first step is we get rid of all the parasites. We clean out all the bullshit. Like, that sounds freaking totalitarian. It might not be liberal, right? <laughs> I mean, that's one of the criticisms of the politics of the household, right? Is it's not liberal, right? It's not in the sense of allowing for all different forms of participation. Yeah, we talked about different ideas of the social contract that some folks base the state by first starting with the family and saying that the state is kind of like an extended family especially if you see the family as fundamentally patriarchal, then yeah, you're going to end up with a monarchy or worse. Yeah, and we're all wearing the same suit. Would these people of this class not have slaves at home? Sure. Because slaves would be very much part of the family, wouldn't they? You need and a really good slave. That is part of the oikos, yes. But you can't do without the village. You need somebody bringing the wood. Yeah, it takes a village. So I think that's all the other people who are in the basket. But this way of talking about it is, I'm not sure that it's wrong, but it's making the criticism, the Aristophanic criticism, 
like a home base kind of criticism. It makes it much more non-cosmopolitan, even though it's talking about panhellenism, right? It doesn't sound genuinely cosmopolitan, right? It sounds like it's going to be all of us one because we're all basically the same. We're going to get rid of distinction. It's not a, let's have lots of different kinds of factions in a big soup and structure it so that we can make sure that the thing doesn't come apart at the seams. It's let's make everything so that everybody's basically the same. I don't think that's what this is saying, make everyone the same. I agree that it's unrealistic, but I mean, I think the metaphor of weaving is good in the sense that you preserve the strands even as you weave them together. And so it's more about a harmonizing of all those different interests. And it's not that everyone is wearing the same cloak, right? The cloak is metaphorically... So the way, if you look at other translations, it's clear that it's the people as a whole who all have one cloak covering them, which is not to say that they're all... Norms that cater to everybody's needs, right? You said norms as well, so it would have to be both. All those things that are the the lines that the threads go through that connect it together. So it's not just a pile of yarn, right? It's connected into one thing. Yeah, so even if we're a pluralistic society... I mean, we talked about this in a little in our freedom of speech episode. There's still a sort of general conception of the good underlying that pluralism, which is even if it's just as basic as pluralism is good. So even if you think of the oikos as the private sphere, has many different private spheres embodying lots of different sorts of values, if it's going to be a coherent functioning society, there must be something that holds them together. So it's a nice metaphor, but I think from a practical standpoint, It's not saying how you get there, obviously. There's no practical advice in there about how you accomplish that. It's just an expression of an ideal. And I actually read the Hallowell intro as well. Hallowell is another translation we looked at. And he just rails. He spends a lot of time just talking about almost, you know, taking it too seriously. Just this how impractical Lysistratus' proposal is. (laughs) She does get specific. Bottom of page 30, she's talking to the magistrate. My first requirement, soldiers leave the marketplace. They strut about in armor, pushing shoppers, smashing goods. They have burgers on their shields. They never pay. So in terms of, Wes, you had just just described it as getting rid of corruption. Like, okay, if there's actual identifiable corruption, it's not those people that are a corruption on the society and we need to expel them. In fact, this talk about gathering all them, the minorities, the slaves, that these are all necessary parts things to be woven into the strand, those two things together make it sound less sinister, that maybe getting rid of corruption is not something so dire as I was trying to spell it out as. Well, actually, I think it is. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I think she actually, just because from comparing translation, she is talking about getting rid of the filthy elements of society, as in, it's the well-disposed people, the good people that you weave in. So, unfortunately, I think you were right about that. So, is that what's going on at the end? They're making peace, and they they have this slave beating scene. This was page sixty two. Yeah. So the the chorus they've just said, okay, we're going to have a feast. We've told our slaves to fetch the bread and give it away, but we've got a Doberman who doesn't like the poor. And then the Athenian ambassador says, "Open up the gate. You should have got out of my way. You slaves, quit loafing. How'd you like your hair burned off? Slave beating. What a stale routing. Director, I won't do it. Ask the audience. All right, to please you, I'll go through with it. So in other words, it's self deprecating. He actually breaks the fourth wall. <laughs> because he doesn't really want to, you know, lean too heavily. That's real buffoonery, isn't it? I think it was, this is actually standard at the end of the play, the comic play, actually. You break the Uh, wall for ancient Greek comedy, yeah. 
Get lost, you slaves. Your hair is in serious danger. Get lost. We'd like the Spartans to depart from their bank without stumbling over you. Yeah, it seems a weird, gratuitous thing. Like, the slaves haven't played any part. It's not like the slaves were the villains. It's not like I was the slave saying, Ah, I'm going to burn you down. Ah, They treated us like slaves. Like, no, it's just new characters that are being introduced that get no lines and are whipped. There you go. Just for fun. (laughs) They're mentioned earlier by the generals and stuff. They don't have any speaking parts, you're correct, but they're mentioned as part of the army. They're slaves in the army that the generals are, you know, harass. Is that related to his Huns? How his Huns are utterly defeated? Are they the Huns? Are foreigners slaves? Well, Huns is one of those terms. So one thing that Henderson does is there are a lot of contemporary terms and references that, because we don't have any context for what they are, he glosses them into things that are more idiomatic for our times. Well, for instance, there are a lot of cases where there are very specific names mentioned of current Greek society that get described as who they were. Are you saying that historians do not know whether they were Huns or Persia or, or, you know? I think that he's using Huns as a generic term, not as a specific term for Persians or anything like that. It's like a horde, a horde of warriors. The defeated army, yeah. I'm looking at another translation, the one that the Project Gutenberg is. How basely did my archer force come off? That's what he says instead of, alas, my Huns are utterly defeated. It's very hard to, you know, these translations are so different. <laughs> Crazily different. Yeah. He's also doing that line by line thing. Like he's, it's one line of English for one line of the ancient Greek. So yeah, there's a lot of license taken in this, this translation. If it's Greeks fighting Greeks, then the slave, the beaten army are still your own people. I mean, is that, this is that whole funny? Th- they're coming home and they are the slaves and they're getting beaten? Is, is there some sort of a joke thing in there? I would hope that that's not the case, that the Spartan ambassadors come, they see some fellow Spartans who are now slaves, they say, hi, I see you're, you've been enslaved, but that's okay, my oikos is intact, you're an unlucky one, <laughs> we're going to make peace and uh, leave a good man behind. <laughs> we're not going to do a prisoner exchange. Although it is funny that they don't there is mention when the women make their plans at the beginning, they say a Lampito brings some other women with her and they talk about them. They don't have lines and says, we'll leave them there as hostages. And then they're never mentioned again. Those women, I guess they just stay or it's not important. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to overthink it. MacGuffin. So just looking at this other translation, the slave part, my dog is hungry too and bites beware. Some loungers from the market with torches approach the banqueting hall. The porter bars their entrance. First market lounger, open the door, porter. Here, move along, first market lounger. What's this? You're sitting down? Shall I singe you with my torch? That's vulgar. Oh, I couldn't do it. Yet, if it would gratify the audience, I'll mortify myself. And the second market lounger says, and I will too. We'll both be crude and vulgar. Yes, we will. And the porter says, be off at once now or you'll be wailing dirges for your hair. Get off at once and see you don't disturb the Spartan envoys just coming out from the splendid feast they've had. So nothing there specifically about slaves. They're just loungers in the market, which maybe this corresponds to the soldiers in the marketplace that are eating all the burgers. It's hard to match up the different parts of the text in this way. Definitively. Open to interpretation, I would say. It's a weird play in that they're basically surrounded by Spartans at this point. There's a big garrison nearby and It's not long before they're actually going to be defeated and the Athens Empire is going to come to an end and it's going to be the Spartan Empire after that. And they're lucky 
because Spartan allies wanted to see Athens raised to the ground and everyone killed. And they're lucky that the Spartans refused to do that, and Athens was able to persist. And so during the time of Plato and Socrates, we're seeing a Athenian empire that's already been defeated. So some of the things Lysistrata is proposing actually sound like what Sparta is. It's a more structured society. And by the way, women had many more rights in Spartan society, including, by the way, they generally didn't get married until they were in their 20s because the Spartans wanted to reduce the death rate of women from childbirth. So they actually, on average, lived longer Spartan women than Athenian women and all sorts of things like that. There's a sort of communism in the way they approach things as far as raising children as well and all sorts of other stuff. That's sort of why the Russian stereotype fits. So at the end here, when you're sort of like, it's a Spartan, there's unity with Sparta to end the play. And the last thing that's said is by a Spartan ambassador. I think a lot of that is supposed to be, I mean, it's weird given the context. And I think it's supposed to be really tongue in cheek in a sense, because of course, I think everyone in the audience knows it's not what's going to happen. There is not going to be any reconciliation with Sparta, and that idea is completely absurd. They've been fighting for a long, long time, and Sparta is on the verge of winning the war. Well, that seems like a good way to end our first half. Folks can come back next week and get part two, or become Partially Examined Life citizens at partiallyexaminedlife.com, or a supporter at Patreon, and you can get the citizen version right now. You can hear what we're about to talk about. You don't have to wait. You can just do it right now. All right, see ya.